Uh, good morning. Um, I guess the first piece of good news this morning is that I didn't mess up in my head whether I was teaching this morning or not. <laughs> what did you say to me the other day? I mean, Randy, actually, you are ready to teach this Sunday. Oh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't forgot. Uh, <laughs> So a couple weeks ago, uh, Randy asked a question. I don't know if you can remember back two weeks. Uh, uh, but he asked a question about God's relationship with time. In particular, he was questioning the assumption most of us have from our contact or upbringing in the church that God is, quote-unquote, outside of time. Uh, now that, I think, is a particularly important when we consider the picture we have of God in the Scripture is that he's fully functioning within time, right? I mean, anybody have a problem with that? The Bible does not portray God as distant or beyond our experience as one might, and I'm just saying might, might expect if he is outside of time. Rather, Paul tells us that Jesus came in the fullness of time, that's Galatians 4.4, 4, and that the whole story of the Bible is the story of God's presence within history, and even more, his presence with us moment by moment. So, in other words, God is present in the present. Amen? He is with us within our experience of time. Uh, now, I, I'm not smart enough to figure out what it means for God to be outside of time. Uh, one of the things I've realized as I've gotten older is that when I was younger, I used to think of everything as an either-or. The older I get, the more I begin to think most most of the time, it's a both and. Uh, anyway, Randy pointed out that the idea of God being outside of time comes primarily from Greek philosophy, and at times that that gets read into the scriptures, sometimes affecting even how it's translated. Now, for me, philosophy is not a problem. In fact, it seems to me that good theology will make sense philosophically, and that it ought to make sense of our experience of life. Right? The problem is when philosophy and experience are put before our reading of the Scripture. Does that make sense? Uh, when convictions get established ahead of our reading of Scripture, they begin to change what we think the Bible, as God's inspired self-revelation, can actually say about Him. So today and next Sunday, Randy has asked me to talk about what has come to be known as open theism. Uh, now, how many of you have heard that term or that label? Only a handful of people. How many of you have a, uh, this is an affective question now, how many of you have a negative connotation for that term? How many of you have a positive? Uh, and I'm just asking because for me, uh, if you know anything about my background, I was almost ordained in the Presbyterian Church, which is Calvin. Uh, I was involved with a, a group that was kind of John Piper, uh, Dan Fuller, Jonathan Edwards, very much kind of not just predestination, but double predestination. Uh, so for me, when I, the first time I heard the, the words open theism, it came with this feeling of beware, watch out, heresy, negative, bad, bad news. All right? And I, that really, it took me 10 years to actually begin to figure out what it even meant. I was so put off, right? Uh, 
So this is a topic that can be difficult for some just because it touches on some long-held beliefs. And so let me just say a few things uh, in, to set the stage, really. And hopefully you all have a handout. So uh, what I, there's so much stuff this morning. This handout may or may not be helpful to you, but some of the stuff's in here. Uh, for me, this is not a doctrine that the creeds define. This is not dogma of Orthodox Christianity and is therefore not a doctrine that I think Christians should divide over. That makes sense? Maybe another way of saying it is that this is not something that I think affects our salvation. Uh, it's a secondary, tertiary kind of doctrine. It does change our mental image of God, and I think that's why we're actually talking about it. Uh, it it's, so it is significant because it, the way we think about God changes a little bit. It touches on problems like the problem of evil. Uh, it touches on prayer and how it actually works. So it's not insignificant, but it never, never trumps Jesus' command to love one another and to be, yes, exactly, that's what I was trying to say, that, you know, that, that, that we are one. So we have to figure out a loving way to, to talk about these things, a non-threatening way. Uh, so, so secondly, the aim or goal really is to help each other come to the best understanding we can of what the Bible says and means. Right? So what I want to do this week and next is to present scriptures that are central to two different ways of understanding God and the nature of the future. Because in the end, it's the scriptures that must come first and are really most important. Now, we may in the end disagree, but what we're trying to do is help each other really grapple with, what do the, what do the scriptures say? What does it really mean? Uh, there's a great passage in Acts 17.11 where Luke says that the Bereans were more noble, more open-minded than the, the believers in, or the, the people in Thessalonica because they would listen eagerly to Paul and his message and then they would search the scriptures to see whether what he was saying is true. Daily they were kind of listening and searching the scriptures. And so, you know, I really my hope is that this morning we'll be good Bereans. Personally, I, I've come to believe that open theism does the best job of putting together all the ways the Bible talks about God in the future, but that doesn't make me right. doesn't make those who don't agree with me wrong. Uh, I believe, as you know, believe differently for most of my life, and I am relatively sure that there are things I believe right now that later on I'm going to find out are off base. <laughs> Right? I mean, we're all growing in our understanding. What I believed when I was 18 is not what I believe now, and I'm sure what I believe now, God's going to say, hey, not quite right. So I know I'm up front teaching, but that doesn't automatically make me right either, right? So if you're not convinced, but this stimulant, yes, Martha agrees very eagerly. <laughs> It, but if, if you're not, if it's, it, but if it stimulates our, under, our our interaction with Scripture and our conversation, then we're all still loved by Jesus and we're all members of His family. Nevertheless, I'm going to try to be persuasive. Fair enough. Okay. That that's good. Thank you. That makes me feel better. I, I don't want you to feel threatened, but you know, let, let let's just put stuff out on the table. So I need to start by defining the issue. What are we really talking about? Uh, it, 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 
it's hard to peel back all the layers, but when you get down to the nuts and bolts, what we're really debating about is the nature of the future. Is the future exhaustively predetermined and settled? Right? Everything is known and cannot be changed in the mind of God. Or does the future contain genuine possibilities that things may be this way or things may be that way? Uh, what we find when we look at the Bible are passages that paint two different kinds of pictures. Uh, the first I will call the motif of future determinism, and the second I'll call the motif of future openness. Now, most of us are familiar with passages that depict God as foreknowing and or predestining certain things about the future, right? Can you all think of passages off the top of your head? That's not an unfamiliar concept or category. What's often overlooked is that there is another major motif that shows up in passages that depict God facing a partly open future. A future in which God does not control or foreknow exactly what is going to happen. And in fact, it sort of depends on what we do. Now, here, here's the rub. All right? And this is the, the kind of focal, fulcrum, if you will, the focal point. Are these motifs mutually exclusive? Or can they both be true? Is it an either-or, or is it a both-and? <laughs> or to put it another way, just because God is portrayed as predetermining some things, doesn't mean God therefore predetermines everything. Is that a logical, necessary conclusion? So the classical theological tr tradition, which, you know, again, if this includes Catholics, it includes Protestants, uh, which was influenced by Greek philosophy, defined God's perfection in static and timeless terms. Uh, my first engineering class in college was statics. It means unchanging, you know, not dynamic, but static. And because of this philosophical conviction, all change is considered an imperfection and therefore not applicable to God. This in turn means that there's no way for theologians in the classical tradition to conceive of God as entertaining any real possibilities. And as a result, any passage that portrays God as facing an open future is explained away as a concession to our inability to understand God's impassibility. I know, there's a lot of big words in that sentence. But, but those are kind of the theological terms that get thrown around. And therefore, that those passages can't be taken literally. Right? So if you read Calvin's Institutes, if you read Thomas Aquinas' Summa Theologica, all the passages where it looks like God is changing his mind or saying, you know, it's up to you, they say, well, this is just a, a concession and accommodation of our inability to really understand God being outside of time. And therefore, can't be taken literally. Or, you know, it's like an anthropomorphism, if you will. Now, in contrast to the classical view, the open view is rooted in the belief that the passages that make up the motif of future openness should be taken just as literally as the other passages. In other words, open, the open view believes that the future is both partially determined and partly open. Now, what I want to do with the rest of my time this morning is to look at the passages that make up the motif of future determinism. So this week, we're looking at 
those scriptures that get used most often to kind of uh, get across the idea that God exhaustively foreknows the future, predetermines everything. Next week we'll look at the motif of future openness. And what I'm hoping to persuade you of this morning is that these passages uh, that are used to support the idea that the future is exhaustively settled only actually prove that some of the future is settled. Right now, so I'm kind of being a lawyer. <laughs> this is how I'm going to prove my case. Uh, they don't require us to conclude that all of the future is actually predetermined. All right? So let's, if you, if you look at your handout, I, I only have a couple passages actually printed out because otherwise there's just way too many. Um, and <laughs> actually, we should pray. All right, let, let's pray. Uh, Lord, I, I pray, I, I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that you, uh, to whatever, in whatever way you're outside of time, you're actually also way in time and here with us. And I, I pray that your spirit would give us grace and help and understanding hearts that are humble and wanting to know. Lord, help us understand more of who you are and what this world is like to see things as Jesus saw them. Uh, we love you. I, I pray that you'd help me. I just feel like it's a little overwhelming how much material there's here and how to get through it in a, in a way that's helpful. So just come, be with us in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start with a couple passages uh, from Isaiah that Randy actually mentioned two weeks ago. These are passages that many point to as kind of being the foundation for believing that God controls all of history. Now, as I read them to you, I want you to think about whether these verses require us, whether it's necessary to conclude that God actually predetermines everything. So Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. This is on the handout. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Isaiah 48, verses 3 to 5. I foretold the former things long ago. My mouth announced them, and I made them known. Then suddenly I acted, and they came to pass. For I knew how stubborn you were. Your neck muscles were iron. Your forehead was bronze. Therefore, I told you these things long ago, before they happened. I announced them to you so that you could not say, My images brought them about. My wooden image and my metal god ordained them. So what do you think? Does that prove that the future is exhaustively settled? The history is exhaustively predetermined by God? Or just some things? Okay, why do you say that? <laughs> okay, amen. Okay, these things, he's talking about specific things, a subset of everything. Yeah, and see, and here's my point basically that if you come to these passages with the assumption that God predetermines everything, or the idea, idea that if God predetermines anything, he must therefore predetermine everything, 
then this looks like rock-solid proof, right? But if you get rid of those assumptions, that's not what the passages actually say. It's very Greek of you, Ezra. <laughs> very platonic. Uh, yeah, and this is where it gets hard because language of foreknowledge, pre predestination, all this stuff, it's, it's uh, not easy. But what he's saying is, I'm, gonna, I'm telling you now what's going to happen in the future, right? So that when it actually happens, you know I'm doing it and not these false gods or idols that you've made, right? So he's declaring from the beginning before it happens what he's going to do. But that's part of my point is he's actually specifically oops, uh, talking about the things that he has decided he's going to do ahead of time and he, he, it's his purposes, his intentions, and those things he's going to bring to pass, right? In other words, the future is settled to whatever extent God decides to settle it. Does that make sense? You know, you've heard me say this before. In my view or understanding of the Bible, even though God has chosen to limit himself in order to create a world in which love is possible, and even though God has given humanity self-determining freedom and say-so, we have physical say-so, we have spiritual say-so in terms of prayer, God still retains his own say-so. And he has the ability to do what he intends or purposes. In fact, the good news is, he can't accomplish whatever he intends or purpose. Period. He's going to win in the end. Amen. That's good news. Uh, so the question remains, and how much of the future does God predetermine or control? We know he can do whatever he wants to do in that respect, but how much does he want to predetermine and control? Now from here, there are five main categories of Scripture that show God predicting and bringing about future events. Uh, and, and again, from the classical view, these are all seen as confirmations that, of God's exhaustive foreknowledge. Uh, so the categories, I think this is on the second side of your handout, are you know, his foreknowledge of chosen people, foreknowledge of certain individuals and nations, foreknowledge of Christ's ministry, foreknowledge of the elect, and foreknowledge of the end times. Now, again, as I've said, the, there's far more material involved with this than I can cover. But remember, the main question is whether the Scripture we look at in each of these categories requires us to come to the conclusion that if God predetermines these things, He therefore predetermines everything. And obviously, I'm convinced that they don't. You ready? All right, we, not, not too bad. Not too bad. Everybody take a deep breath. All right. So first, the Bible has some remarkable accounts of God's knowledge about the future of his chosen people in the Old Testament. So, you know, there's not a lot of space, but if you want to jot down some verses and have a pen, you can do that. For example, in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, God tells Abraham that his offspring will be slaves in Egypt for 400 years but afterward would come out with great possession. Right? At this point, Abraham doesn't even have a kid, right? 
Similarly, when Israel was in captivity in Babylon, God promised them through the prophet Jeremiah that after 70 years, and you'll know this verse, quote, I will fulfill you my promise and bring you back to this place, which is Jerusalem, for surely I know the plans I have for you, and you can finish that, right? Yeah. So like the passages that we looked at at first in Isaiah, these two prophecies have to do with things that God says He intends to do. So the question is, and this is slightly different, so listen carefully. Uh, the question is, does God have to control and foreknow everyone else's future decisions in order to ensure the fulfillment of his own intentions and purposes? Does that make sense? For God to bring to pass what he intends to do, does he actually have to control us? Or do we get to retain our freedom? <laughs> It's a, well, it's a little bit of a both and here, so, but it, 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 we'll get there, I hope. So I want to take a moment and point out that our experience of reality, which can't, can't come before the Scriptures, but I think, I think matches what I think the Scriptures teach, is that there are always givens and possibilities in our experience. There's always things that are predetermined and things that we... Uh, have genuine choices about. Consider that none of us chooses where, to whom, or in what socioeconomic class we are born. These matters are decided for us. Yet each of us has a wide range of decisions and choices to make within these parameters. For example, none of us can choose our mother, but most of us can choose our spouse. And even if we're in a cult from a culture in which we don't get to choose our spouse, we get to choose how we treat our spouse, him or her, the, the, that our parents choose for us. We always have choices within parameters of things we do not choose. And since freedom is always restricted in certain ways, there's no reason to assume that God would have to control or foreknow all the future decisions people would make in order to predetermine that the Jews would be in captivity for a period of time. To me, it's simply a matter of God defining the parameters within which human freedom will occur. Uh, there's an analogy here, and I've, I've struggled with where this ought to fit in. Uh, you know, probably later, but you'll get it. Uh, the way insurance companies work is they have actuaries, right? Actuaries deal with huge amounts of data, and within the huge, with that huge amount of data, they can predict with relative accuracy behavior of large groups of people. So, for instance, they can predict that this year, uh, between 7 and 8% of 14-year-olds in America will begin smoking. We know that with relative accuracy. What it can't predict is the individuals who actually will begin smoking, Right? Do you see the analogy? I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of social behavior that's highly predictable, and yet we can never actually predict individual choices within that. And I think that has, uh, uh, is a good picture of a lot of what's happening in the Scriptures, if you will. Uh, second, there are a number of times that God demonstrates foreknowledge of particular individuals and nations. 
Twice in Scripture, God names individuals before they are born and provides some details about their lives. So Josiah was to tear down the pagan altars and destroy the pagan priesthood that plagued Israel. That's in 1 Kings 13, 2 and 3. While Cyrus was to help rebuild Jerusalem. That's predicted in Isaiah 44. God appointed Jeremiah to be a prophet to the nations when he was still in his mother's womb. That's Jeremiah 1, 5. And the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 that he was set apart before he was born. And a final example is that God foretells the succession of four kingdoms through Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel 2, 31 to 45. So the, again, the classical view argues that if this much can be foreknown as settled by God, we have no reason to deny that every detail about the future is settled in God's mind. Now, I don't know how you feel about that. I actually think that's kind of persuasive. That's, a, that's not a weak argument. I mean, there's some power to that. I mean, if God can, you know, it wouldn't be that difficult for him to foreknow everything. The question is whether that's really what he actually chooses. But to conclude from the example of Josiah and Cyrus that the names and activities of all people are settled from all eternity, I think actually is unwarranted. Uh, they certainly show that God is the sovereign Lord of history and can predetermine whatever he pleases, including some people's names and destinies. But they do not justify the conclusion that he therefore settled the entire future ahead of time. Even the verses indicating that God had a life plan for Jeremiah and Paul before they were born is evidence of exhaustively settled foreknowledge only if, follow me here, only if Jeremiah and Paul had no choice but to carry out God's plan. Does that make sense? Even the verses indicating that God had a life plan for Jeremiah and Paul, which is clear in the scriptures, before they were born, is evidence of exhaustively settled foreknowledge only if Jeremiah and Paul had no choice but to carry out God's plan. What we, can we assume this? So this is what's interesting. Paul stands before King Agrippa making his self-defense in Acts 26, 19, and he says that he could have been disobedient to the heavenly vision by which he was called. Yeah. This in and of itself suggests that God's call on a person's life isn't a guarantee that the person will follow him. Right? And in fact, as we're told in Luke 7 verse 30, Scripture is filled with examples of people who, quote unquote, rejected God's purpose for themselves. Right? So... Interesting. I mean, I, I, I just, you need to see both sides. Maybe a, a helpful example of just how complicated all this can become is the Bible's teaching regarding God's foreknowledge of Judas's betrayal of Jesus. Uh, in, in John's Gospel, Jesus... Uh, whoop! Didn't get that on my belt. Uh, Jesus predicts uh, Judas's betrayal three, three times. First, in John 6, 64, when it says uh, that Jesus knew, quote-unquote, from the first that Judas would betray him, the Greek word here is arche, 
Uh, and it doesn't necessarily imply that Jesus knew who would betray him from a time before that person actually decided in his heart to betray him, let alone from all eternity. RK can mean simply from early on, and that's the way it's used in Philippians 4.15. So the verse most likely suggests that Jesus knew who would betray him from the moment Judas resolved to betray him, or from the time that Jesus chose him to be a disciple. So again, it's just, the the assumptions you have going into reading, can it change how you actually understand or interpret a verse, right? Second, many assume that when Jesus referred to Judas as the one who was, quote, destined to be lost in John 17, 12, that he meant Judas was damned from the beginning of time. How many of you have read that verse thinking that? I know I did, right? However, this verse simply doesn't say that. The Greek translated, and this is where translation becomes an issue because of assumptions and predisposition, uh, the, Greek trans- that's cr- the, the, the Greek translated as destined to be lost literally says son of perdition without any indication of when Judas became this. Right? So there's no time connotation to the term. That, that just gets read in. Uh, it's just as possible to view this statement as describing that by the time Jesus said this, Judas had of his own free will made himself into a person fit for destruction. And finally, Jesus tells us that Judas fulfilled Scripture, not that Judas was the one who had to fulfill Scripture. There's a difference. Again, think about the actuary. I mean, human nature, human behavior is predictable, although individual choices are not so predictable. And if they're genuinely free, you don't know what's going to be decided ahead of time. So we do not need to assume that God orchestrated that, some good, that good people carry out evil deeds. It seems more likely to me that God specifies the way people act out the good or evil character that they have already chosen for themselves. Moving on. Third, many passages of Scripture make it clear that God foreknew and predestined aspects of Jesus' ministry, especially his death. And this one, I think, is the most obvious. I mean, this, this is kind of the center of Scripture, and therefore the place where God has his finger most strongly. Right? Indeed, 1 Peter 1.20 tells us that Christ was destined before the foundation of the world. We're familiar with many Old Testament passages that anticipate Jesus' coming. For example, in Isaiah 53, where uh, he describes the suffering servant. Uh, where Isaiah foretells several things about the suffering servant, including that he would die with the wicked, but be buried with the rich. That's clearly what happened. Jesus himself foretold uh, what was going to happen to him, that he was going to go to Jerusalem, suffer, die, be raised from the dead three times during his ministry. And Acts 2.23 states clearly that Jesus' death and resurrection were, quote, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Amen. Amen. But while Scripture portrays the crucifixion as a predestined event, it doesn't specify or suggest that the individuals who participated in this event were predetermined to do so. It was certain that Jesus would be crucified, 
even though he struggles in Gethsemane, right? He has a choice to make. But it was not necessarily certain from eternity that Pilate, Herod, or Caiaphas, even Judas, would play the roles that they played in the crucifixion. We can just as easily assume that they participated in Christ's death of their own free wills, and that God kind of could predict that someone was going to be able to fulfill that role, given the history, given the predisposition, given the beliefs of the time. Fourth, defenders of the classical view of foreknowledge argue that Scripture demonstrates that God foreknows who his elect will be. So this, this is one I think we've all probably struggled with. Paul writes in Romans 8.29 that those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul tells believers that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Also, 2 Timothy 1.9, Paul says we were given grace in Christ before the ages began. So, it's easy to read these verses and assume Paul is referring to every single individual that will ever become a part of the church. How many of you read it and think that? Or thought that? Right? I mean, I, I, that's reflexively how I read that verse for years and years and years. So the question is, is when, when Paul writes that, is he talking about every single individual or is he talking about the group entity of the elect or the church. Consider this analogy, okay? Suppose you attend a seminar in which a certain video is shown. This is work-related probably. You might ask the instructor, when was it decided, i.e., when was it predetermined that we'd watch this video? To which the instructor might respond, it was decided six months ago that you'd watch this video. Note that it was not decided six months ago that you individually would watch this video. What was decided was that anyone who took this seminar would watch the video. Do you see the, the, the complexity of language there? I mean, are we individually predestined, or is it that the church is predestined? Is, is what God had in mind from the beginning of time the church, or every single individual that makes up the church? Or is it our choice to put our trust in Jesus that puts us into the seminar in which we're going to watch the video? Does that make, this, does that make sense? So that, that's, that's the issue. That's, that's the trick. Uh, there, Romans 9 is, is complicated. I mean, there's issues about foreknew and whether foreknew means an information that God has in his head or foreknew means that he know in the loving sense. I mean, in Romans 11, two chapters later, it talks about God foreknowing his chosen people, the, the Israelites, the Jews, when he's talking about the whole issue between Jews and Gentiles. And again, is he, is he, at that point in time, is Paul thinking about every individual Jew that God, or is he talking about the people group of the Jews? Well, I, I, think, I think it's more likely that he's talking about that group of his chosen people, not all the individuals that make it up. 
How you guys doing? Not too bad. Okay, good. I'm exhausted. <laughs> uh, in, in fact, for the sake of time, I'm going to skip the fifth category. But, but as you can anticipate, it, it's more of the same. Again, the, the issue is, because, just because God predestines certain things, which we know he does, that he has say so, and he, he's going to make things that he wants to happen, doesn't mean that he necessarily chooses to make everything happen, that he controls everything down to the littlest iota or dot. And I think what you'll find if you read the scriptures with an open mind is that over and over again, he's talking about very specific things that you don't necessarily have to then generalize to everything. So that's the basic point. Now, there is one other uh, passage that I think it's just worth talking about because uh, at some point in time, we all read it. It's a very moving passage, and I think it gets written pretty deeply in our hearts and minds. Uh, in fact, Becky and I have this beautiful box that was given to us as a gift by dear friends that has the verses of Psalm 139 written around the edge. And, you know, in Psalm 139, uh, many see verse 16 in which uh, David writes, In your book are written all the days that were formed for me, is again, as a refutation of the open view, as a confirmation of kind of the classical view of exhaustive foreknowledge. You know, because we read it personally. I mean, God, David says, you knew all of my days before they began. We read it, oh, God knows every, the exact time of my life. Surely that means, you know, he knows every detail about what's happening. Right? Is that what it says? So let me make... Three brief points. First, the Hebrew in this passage is really ambiguous. The word translated form can be interpreted in a strong sense of determined or in a weaker sense of planned. Also, the subject matter of what was formed and written in the book before they existed is not supplied in the original Hebrew. Right? This is called an ellipsis. There's, it's, it's an empty void that you have to figure out what he's referring to. It's therefore not clear whether what was planned were the days of the psalmist's life or rather the parts of the psalmist's body. The verses immediately preceding verse 16 in Psalm 139 describe the formation of the psalmist's body in the womb. It seems an interpretation of this verse that continues with this theme would be more appropriate, doesn't it? You formed all my parts while I was in the womb. An interpretation that inserts an unrelated reference to time or days to the psalmist's future seems to be out of place. So that's the first and maybe the biggest point. I mean, it, it's unclear whether that's really what Psalm 139 is actually even saying. Second, even as this verse did say the, that the exact length of our lives was settled before we were born, it would not follow that everything about our future was settled before we were born. We must be careful not to outrun what Scripture actually says or teaches. Third, even if we choose to take the subject matter of what is formed and written in this verse to be the days of the psalmist's life, this does not require us to believe that the length of his life was unalterable. That 
Seem strange? Scripture elsewhere suggests that what is written in the Lord's book of life actually can be changed. That's what it says in Exodus 30. It says the same thing in Revelation 3. The story, you guys know the story of King Hezekiah? You know, God adds 15 years to his life after declaring that, you know, he, surely he would die. Right? So it, 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 it's not unalterable. It's not unchangeable. There's, it, what you see over and over again is that your name can be written in the book of life and it can actually be blotted from the book of life. Is that God saying from eternity it's been known? I mean, why would God write your name in the book of life if he knows you're not going to be there in the end? I'm much closer to that, absolutely. Now, for these reasons, it seems to me that the best understanding of this verse is that it is about God's intentions at the time of the psalmist's fetal development and not some unalterable decree about the future. All right, so here's the conclusion. To confess that God can control whatever he wants to control leaves open the question of how much God actually wants to control. While the material we've looked at this morning celebrates God's sovereignty over the future, that he can do what he wants to do, absolutely, they do not teach, in my opinion, that the future is exhaustively settled. Whenever we're used to hearing just one side of the story, it's easy to read our assumptions into the evidence rather than allowing all of the evidence to speak for itself. So next week, we're going to explore passages that suggest that some of the future, not all of it, but some of the future, is genuinely open, not determined, and thus not foreknown as settled by God. Now, if you're interested in reading a more thorough presentation of all this material, what I'm talking about this week and next all comes from a book by Greg Boyd called God of the Possible. I recommend it to your, for your careful consideration. So I don't know how to move into a ministry time from this kind of heady topic. But, um, you know, we believe that God is present in the present, that God knows what's happening for each and every one of us right now, that God wants... Uh, an intimate love relationship and partnership with us. He wants our say-so to come in line with his say-so. So So, uh, if you have anything that you'd like prayer for, there will be people up front uh, to pray with you. Uh, I I, I just want to pray again in closing. Uh, Okay, go ahead. Perfect. So as he was sharing... Can I sit down then? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) So as he was sharing, I was thinking... There have to be times in my life and in lives of other people here where we believed God had determined something, and that belief caused a great deal of pain. And then there were other times where we thought, no matter what God determined, I'm going to do it my way. And that choice caused a great deal of pain. And so just, you're reiterating, he said, this isn't about your salvation, but these belief systems affect our choices and they affect how we perceive things that happen that we had no control over. A death of, a, of someone that we loved or something that we really wanted that hasn't come to pass or never came to pass. And those beliefs can disrupt our engagement with God and even cause pain where we have distanced ourselves from God because, well, I thought you should have or I thought you were going to or why didn't you, or those sort of 
beliefs. I don't know if I'm making any sense. Um, and so I was personally connecting with things where I pain in my past or that I observed other people's past um, that maybe you blamed on, we blamed on God or why didn't you come into that moment? And there's this mix of this here and this perception can alter how we've connected or disconnected from God. So I guess that's kind of what I was sensing as maybe an additional piece of ministry is if, if that resonated with you at any point, um, it, I was almost in tears a couple times as he was speaking, thinking about those type of um, perceptions. So I think it'd be great to come and get some prayer for healing um, if that resonated with you. Sure. So um, Holy Spirit, we invited you over and over, and in many ways um, we don't have to invite you because you have been here waiting for us, inviting us to come today. And... Um, you collectively saw us as a group coming to meet with you today. And our individual choices brought us here. And Lord, I just pray that we would make the choice today to open our hearts to you and say, come in. I personally invite you in. And as we, um, as we uh, if there's anyone here, Lord, that has that level of pain from obstruction in relationship with you, from having had a different perspective of how you engage with us and with time, um, we just invite you into that place in our hearts and into those memories and past choices and into what you're doing in our lives as we welcome you in our future. Thank you that your love for us is constant and is something that never needs to be questioned. And if we're questioning it, that's an okay place to be because you love us even right there. Thank you for this adventure that we are on with you. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>